Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. I recently came across a book titled Into the Magic Shop. It's written by James Doty, a neurosurgeon who is now the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at the Stanford University School of Medicine in California. The book is an autobiographical record of how he grew into a successful surgeon who brought compassion into his medical practice and how people need to be taught and then develop a sense of self and how to face the world. He's here to talk to us about that critical process that changed both his life as well as the lives of many of his patients. Dr. Doty, thank you so much for being with us. It's wonderful to be with you and thank you for having me. The book is extremely well written and replete with so many critical thoughts about what the practice of medicine should be. Indeed, it's a look at how to make relationships better between people. What triggered you to write the book? The motivation to write the book actually came from really the number of people who had heard me speak because oftentimes I give them a bit of my own personal background, which included my father being an alcoholic, my mother being an invalid who had been paralyzed by a stroke and had a seizure disorder, depressed, had attempted suicide. Neither of my parents had gone to college, and we were on public assistance my entire life. And who we are as adults often relates to our backstories, and certainly that background impacted me into what I have become today. And Ruth is really a main character in this narrative. At the time of where the story starts is really at age 12. And by that time, I was becoming an angry young man and also was realizing that I probably had no future. And this is the case if you don't have mentors, if you grow up in poverty, especially if you're a minority. By accident, I walked into a magic shop. Interestingly, the owner was not there, but his mother was there. And she knew nothing about the magic in the store per se, but she knew about a different type of magic. And I tell people that inter initial interaction with this woman who I describe as an earth mother type with this radiant embracing smile really changed the trajectory of my life, which included my father being an alcoholic, my mother being an invalid who had been paralyzed by a stroke and had a seizure disorder. In the book, you go into great, wonderful detail about different things that she taught you. It's almost as if you were very fortunate to fall in, under the umbrella of a very good mentor. What sort of things did she teach you that you weren't learning elsewhere in life? First of all, as a 12-year-old in my circumstance, it was unusual for adults really to take a significant interest in you. Oftentimes, you were sort of pushed aside. And, and in this particular case, she took great interest in me. But what she had in terms of knowledge is something that is much more commonly found today, which is an interest in if you will, Eastern philosophical traditions or meditation practices. One of the first things she taught me was how to relax my body because many of us don't appreciate that our emotional states, especially if we're anxious or sad or stressed, manifests itself in our body and tightness of muscles. And the nature of that results in our inability to really focus and be attentive or, if you will, be present. And as a result, that was the initial technique that she used, which was a breathing exercise and ultimately either utilizing a candle to focus on or a mantra. 
And that initial technique allowed me to understand that reality and also to appreciate that I myself was anxious and stressed. And then as that technique was understood and developed, she taught me another technique, which was to appreciate first that so many of us have a dialogue or conversation going on in our head. And in the West, that conversation or dialogue is often not necessarily one that is positive or affirmative, but one that is hypercritical and negative. In some ways, I tell people it was as if she made me recognize that I was in a prison. And the reality is you cannot escape from prison if you don't appreciate that you're even in prison. And as a result, she taught me a technique which first made me realize this conversation existed and that conversation or dialogue did not represent me. Then she made me understand that oftentimes we have a emotional response to that type of negative dialogue. And then she taught me how to not have that response. And in fact, also to understand that there is a ability that we can each master, which is not to have an immediate response to a stimulus. And oftentimes many of us react in a way immediately to, let's say, a negative event that occurs. And she taught me that there was the opportunity to pause. And in that pause, many things could happen. And this was really a concept that was initially described, I think, by Viktor Frankl in his extraordinary book about his time in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And ultimately, she allowed me then to appreciate that I could not only not have that response and pause, but also that channel didn't represent me or that dialogue, and I could actually decrease the volume and even ultimately change the channel to one of self-affirmation and support and, if you will, self-compassion and make me realize that who I was, even with aspects of myself that necessarily weren't my ideal self, were still part of me and it was okay to be that way because that's the nature of our humanity. And from there, she then made me understand that not only did I have my own suffering and fear and anxieties and, if you will, dark aspects of myself, but that this characterized essentially everyone and that many of the people who I interacted with, believe in my own family, my father who was an alcoholic or my mother who was chronically depressed, they were not bad people necessarily. And oftentimes the way they acted or responded to their environment represented their own pain and suffering. And that I did not have to get angry or upset, that I could simply sit with that reality and not have an emotional response to that, which was really critical, as well as accepting their humanity, accepting them as they were, not how I wished them to be, and still embracing them with care, concern, and love. As you were talking, what keeps popping into my mind is that there are a lot of people in life who are fortunate to have someone like Ruth, but many aren't, and how lucky you were to have it. No, I'm very blessed. I mean, I tell people that, as I said earlier, it really changed the trajectory of my life. Prior to that event of meeting Ruth and spending time with her, I tell people I felt like a leaf being blown by an ill wind. I had absolutely no control over what happened to me. And this is a horrible situation to be in, especially as a child, but also by anyone. The other thing she made me realize, which was also critical, was that events really do not have any power until you give them power. As an example, after the six-week period, which I describe in the book with Ruth, my personal circumstance did not change. But what 
completely changed everything was how I interacted with the world. And when that changed, it also changed how the world interacted with me. One of the things that you talked about in the book that I thought so critical was the fact that she taught you to pace yourself, that you're going to have to work at something. It's not necessarily going to be easy at the beginning, but it's going to multiply in its momentum and you're going to be better at it the more you do it. I thought that was an incredible message. That's exactly right. You know, some people read self-help books or perhaps even a book like this, and they think, oh, well, geez, that's easy. Anything that's worthwhile, generally speaking, requires effort. Incredible things can happen if one takes the time and makes the effort and is persistent or demonstrates grit, if you will, to stay with something. And then what happens is if you do it, you realize slow incremental changes happen, and suddenly everything changes. And really, that was the situation for me, and it really allowed me to reach my potential in many ways. As you know, not only was I able to go to college, which was probably an unlikely circumstance from my background, but to attend medical school, as well as become a professor of neurosurgery at Stanford and a successful entrepreneur, and also to understand ultimately after I essentially lost my entire wealth that it was actually the greatest blessing in the world because Ruth taught me these incredible lessons, but unfortunately what happens for so many who come from a background such as mine, I really thought that the most important thing was trying to control your environment. And I thought, based on my experience as a child, that it was money and power that gave you that control. And ultimately, with the experience I had ultimately, if you will, of losing everything, it allowed me to gain everything. So it humbled you to go back to the roots that Ruth gave you in many ways. Exactly. And it released this monkey, if you will, that was on my back that was making me chase this chimera, if you will, that offered me what I thought sustenance for this emptiness inside me, but I realized was in fact nothing. And it was only when I finally reconnected and understood that connecting to others, having compassion, being of service, those are the things that give life meaning, and those are the things that are ultimately nourishing to us as human beings. As I read your book, there were stories that reminded me of my experiences in medical school, the good professors, the not-so-good professors, but in particular, one surgeon, he was a vascular surgeon, he would sit down the night before he would do surgery with the patient and touch their shoulder and when you know, we're not supposed to touch our patients anymore. And he would say, you can cry. You can be scared. I'm going to do my best tomorrow. And it was an extraordinary experience. And we were required to go with him on these rounds. And as I read the material in your book, you tried very hard to reach out, be a compassionate human being. I mean, the story you tell about the, 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 the young child and just just numerous stories in the book of reaching out to people, you try to connect to them. Is there a paucity of connection between doctors and patients now? Has that become our style? Has that become our albatross in a way? Well, I think what's happened is it's probably multifactorial. First of all, in the present healthcare environment, which is frankly, unfortunately, been corporatized in some ways where doctors have very limited amounts of time to deal with patients and they work for entities that block out very specific short time frames to have an interaction. It doesn't allow for one to even adequately examine the patient, much less get their history and really form a connection. 
The other part is that the nature of that type of an existence oftentimes robs the well-meaning physician or the physician desiring to truly be a physician the opportunity to do so and creates a significant amount of stress and anxiety, and that further separates them from the patient. And then lastly, the American or Western healthcare system has separated living from dying. And oftentimes with a terminally ill patient, the doctors suddenly disappear, yet interacting at that point in somebody's life and being with them and sharing that experience can really be one of the most life-affirming experiences that one can have the privilege to be engaged. And I think it's all of those things, unfortunately, that have created this environment where so many physicians are leaving medicine, so many physicians have anxiety and depression, so many physicians have committed suicide. The other problem is you look at the other industrialized countries in the world and the United States is the only one that does not have health care for everyone, which creates a very negative situation oftentimes in caring for patients because of the profit motive. It's a business. Therefore, you can't focus on being a good doctor. You have to focus on profitability. It's a very unfortunate thing because even though we spend more on health care than any other industrialized country on every quadrant of efficacy outcome, the United States is in the lowest quadrant. And sadly, you know, we have the highest infant mortality rate, the highest level of childhood poverty. These things have a huge impact. Amazingly, we have, or maybe I shouldn't say amazingly, spending so much money, but in the manner in which healthcare is managed, if you will, or unmanaged, we have the highest level of patient dissatisfaction. So it's really an unfortunate situation. It's almost like a coming together of a number of negative factors that take away from, if you will, the potential of individuals in America living the American dream. I don't know if it was your sentence or you quoted it from somebody, but you said that when there is a student, a teacher appears. I thought that was really profound because that's so central in life. And as I read the book, I realized that what Ruth did is what a teacher should do. A good teacher teaches us to teach ourselves. I, I was left with that feeling because when you got older and you had the business getting through the medical school admissions teams and just after you lost the money and you put yourself back together, you learned, you knew how to look at your world and feel compassionate and be a better doctor, touching your patient. Well, thank you. Well, it actually has been quoted by many individuals, but I think its origin is in Buddhist philosophy that says, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Certainly for me, in the context of my interaction with this incredible woman, Ruth, that was the case. I was really ready at that time, although I was still quite young. That interaction with her gave me a set of tools which, with practice, allowed me to go through life able to handle the varieties of life as it occurs, which is ups and downs and good parts and bad parts, intermixed, if you will, with mistakes that we all make, but still have a belief, first of all, in the goodness of humans in general and the goodness of the world, if you will, when you interact with others in a positive way. So it would seem in so many ways that the work you are doing at the center, and I want you to explain the center to us a little bit, but in a legacy manner, it's the legacy of Ruth, as you are now acting as director of the center. 
I, I must say that if anyone's listening to the in, intonations that I'm putting into this, I really did very much enjoy the book and the humanness of it all. What does the center do? How, how did it get started? Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I've been fortunate in that I've had the privilege of being able to have a fair amount of freedom as to coming and going from Stanford. And I had left Stanford for a period of time and had returned in early 2008. And one of the motivations was that this issue of understanding what motivates people, if you will, to be good or to be kind or compassionate really came to the forefront of my mind. And when I returned to Stanford, I gathered some scientists working in the fields of neuroscience and psychology and explained to them how I really wanted to understand this topic with a little more clarity and could they help me design some studies to look into this. And we actually began a journal club, if you will, and began a couple projects and then one day as I was walking through the campus, it popped into my head that I should invite the Dalai Lama to come and speak. And I have to tell you, I am an atheist, and certainly I was not a Buddhist. I still can't tell you exactly why that happened, but nonetheless, His Holiness, who I think everyone or the vast majority of people see as an icon of compassion and goodness in the world, he had been at Stanford in 1995, or excuse me, in 2005, and I tracked down those who invited him, got the contact information, and ultimately was invited to have a conversation with him. And during that conversation with him, I described to him my interest, the work that I had begun, and invited him to come to Stanford. And amazingly, not only did he immediately agree, but we engaged in further conversation. And many of your listeners may not appreciate that the Dalai Lama has been very interested in neuroscience and how meditation actually affects the brain. Near the end of our conversation, he began an animated discussion with his primary English translator in Tibetan. And for a moment, I thought that I had somehow angered the Dalai Lama, which of course no one wants to do. But at the end of their dialogue or conversation, his primary English translator, Upton Jinpa, said, Jim, his holiness is so impressed by this effort that you've begun that he wants to make a personal donation. And his holiness actually made a donation at that time for the creation of this center, what ultimately became the center, the largest largest donation he had ever given to a non-Tibetan cause, which was really quite extraordinary. And His Holiness does not have tons of funds, but as you probably know, he's written about 60 books or co-authored about 60 books. And from that, he puts that in a fund to primarily help with Tibetan Relief Project. But here he made this incredible exception to fund the work initially that I had begun. And then this led to two other donors, which I will point out actually are Chinese, to give significant donations, which allowed me to create the center that is now part of the School of Medicine and the Neuroscience Institute at Stanford. And if one goes on the internet and looks at it, there's a whole listing of all the work you're doing, links to different videos, discussions, and just the whole process of trying to bring these components to daily life. How do medical students, how do other physicians react to what you're doing? What we've seen, especially in the context of burnout and depression among healthcare providers, that what has been happening is that we have developed different programs, uh, one a compassion cultivation training program, another compassion skills training program that is now being implemented of medical environments that give physicians techniques to address these issues of stress and anxiety 
anxiety and also techniques on how to reconnect with their patients so that the practice of medicine can be joyous. And also we are seeing that these types of interactions, when done with intention, actually result in a significant improvement in health outcomes. In fact, I recently wrote an article for the Huffington Post that talks about why kindness heals and describes some of the research that has been done in this area because it does. Just as we know that when individuals practice kindness with intention, it has a significant effect on their own mental and physical health in the context of decreasing their blood pressure, improving cardiac function, boosting their immune system, decreasing those hormones that are associated with stress, but it also has an effect on others around them. And in fact, ultimately, it has a significant improvement in longevity. Interestingly, we have found out that these types of practices, if done with intention, have as much of a positive effect on health as being at your ideal body weight or exercise. Fascinating work, and I applaud you for it. I, as I'm listening to you, chuckling to myself and saying, this is a neurosurgeon who's practiced psychotherapy. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe at the end of the day, much of what we can do to improve people's lives aren't so much surgery or interventions. It's simply caring. It's this amazing organ that's sitting in our skulls that has both surgical needs and biological needs and emotional needs. And we put them all together. I think we can make life a lot better. The book is called Into the Magic Shop. I do recommend people reading it. It's a wonderful recounting of Dr. Doty's, shall we say, odyssey as he goes through life and pulls himself into and out of crises and situations. But it's also a book explaining how to develop attitudes, how to connect, how to focus. And I thank you very much. James Doty is a neurosurgeon, and he is the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at the Stanford University School of Medicine in California. Sir, thank you so much. This was very good and carries many messages that people need to think about and then develop. I, I thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to be with you.